Welcome to Ask the Expert. Today we have Dr. Will Rust from Seraxis in Maryland. He's, the, he's going to talk to us about lab-grown islets for islet replacement therapy in the clinic. And uh, Will Rust spent most of his scientific career developing research tools and therapies from embryonic stem cells or IPS cells at organizations including Lanza, ATCC, and ESL International. As an early mover with pluripotent stem cell technology, he was uniquely aware of the potency and limitations of pluripotent cells, and he had a strong conviction that a modified or variant form of the cell type could be the basis for superior cell therapy. So based on this conviction, he raised the funds to launch Seraxis Incorporated. And since that time, he's gotten the company to reach its development milestones and complete two additional rounds of funding. Under his leadership, Seraxis has developed a CGMP IPSC variant line from the human pancreas that efficiently and, pre and preferentially re-differentiates to the pancreatic lineage. In combination with a tailored and differentiated protocol, these cells generate highly pure clusters of hormone secreting cells that mimic and function the function of mature human pancreatic islets. This process is compatible with automated closed system cell manufacturing systems and to enable survival and function within a host, Seraxis has developed a microencapsulation device, Seragraft, that is implanted uh, to the abdomen and anchored to a mental tissue. Seraxis' mission is to rapidly and efficiently advance this therapy to the clinic. So welcome, um, Will. I appreciate you joining us today, and I'm really excited to hear about what's going on at Seraxis. You recently received a, a very nice Series, three, uh, series C funding, so I'm sure that's like helping move this forward. Um, do you want to give us a little background um, or start your slides? Uh, so thank you, Monica. That was a terrific introduction. I think you covered it really well, so there's not a lot uh, I, need to, I need to say. We were gratified to complete our last funding round, so we have the support um, to get to the clinic and demonstrate that uh, what we've developed will be a viable therapy for diabetics in need. So uh, let me jump into it. I'm really going to spend this time to introduce uh, our company and what we do. Uh, I'm not going to get into the absolute uh, nitty-gritty details that describe why our cells are different, but if anyone is curious, uh, it's my favorite subject to talk about, so uh, I am uh, always willing to, uh, to describe that for you. Just let me know. All right, let me share my screen, and I will uh, jump into it to avoid wasting time. All right. So you should see the beginning, which is uh, Seraxis Islet Replacement Therapy for Diabetes. And um, I'm going to give you this by way of background, really just to show why the approach of our company, Seraxis, is different. So everybody knows, I think, uh, that there, are, uh, there is an effort shared by a lot of different groups around the world to make islets in the lab. Uh, that could be used as a replacement therapy for uh, insulin-dependent diabetics. And this is the way it is done. Um, you start with an embryonic stem cell or an, uh, an IPS uh, cell, which is essentially ideal in character to an embryonic stem cell, and grow them up in large quantity, and then uh, apply to them a series of chemicals and growth factors and hormones that will cause them to mature to uh, an embryo, I mean, an, um, a functional mature islet. And um, this process of applying the cocktails of uh, growth factors and hormones is intended to mimic what 
an embryonic stem cell would be exposed to in utero. So trying to mimic human development to create this, uh, this islet just in the lab. And um, I, in my career, spent a lot of time trying to do this. And I can tell you, and as I think anybody who's tried, that this is very difficult. <laughs> it is also very frustrating. This process is more than a month long in most cases. And um, it can mimic human development, meaning it actually does produce cells that look like a beta cell or an alpha cell, but it does that very inefficiently. And it does not do it very consistently either. And a lot of times those cells produced are not fully mature. So what I mean by that is the gene that they express are not exactly overlapping with a, an adult human islet. So it was this frustration in trying to do uh, this work that led me to um, the idea that was the foundation of our company. And um, here it is, it's, it's, it's actually very simple. What we did was we acquired a pancreas through organ donation network. We harvested the islets and then from those islets, uh, we reprogrammed them to uh, in a, a stem cell state. However, we did not go so far as to make an iPS cell. And the reason is we didn't look for iPS characteristics. We actually screened all of the stem cells that we made for only one character. And that was the ability to, to remember its identity to form islets again. We just exposed them to a few chemicals and, and picked the colonies that rapidly expressed pancreatic markers. And uh, we did this to uh, uh, dozens and dozens of these lines. And we eventually found one that was very efficient at uh, re-differentiating back into the original identity, which was the islet. Uh, after that process was done, we actually looked closely at its gene expression profile and its behavior in the lab uh, to see if it, if it resembled an iPS cell or an embryonic stem cell. And in fact, it does not. So it, it, is, it would be considered a defective uh, iPS cell. In fact, one of the main, major defects that it has is that it will not um, form uh, mesodermal tissue. Uh, so mesodermal tissue is, is uh, the, the, by mass, um, largest proportion of the human body. And uh, this is the first thing that uh, an embryonic or an iPS stem cell will spontaneously differentiate into in the lab. But uh, the cell line that we developed just won't do it. And the reason is that it doesn't express the master transcription factor that specifies mesodermal tissue. So instead, it just uh, shunts everything very efficiently into the endoderm and then the uh, pancreas. I'm going to show you what, what that looks like. Here is uh, some single cell sequencing data of a few of our batches. where We're just looking at uh, uh, expression of markers of the islet, and uh, in particular, PDX1, a transcription factor of the pancreas, NKX6.1, transcription factor that's found in beta cells, and then, of course, insulin, and show that we have, um, in these plots, uh, you can show that uh, virtually uh, all the cells express one or both of these 
of these uh, mature markers of a human beta cell. So uh, this, this is very different from the data that is published in the literature from embryonic and iPS cells. Uh, I'm not going to put that here because I don't, I, I don't want to just compare us to what uh, others, other groups are doing. Um, but I think that many of you are probably familiar with those, uh, with those data sets. So basically, they just form colonies of cells that are more pure uh, islets. But it's not just that. They're also more mature. They actually function uh, more closely to a native uh, mature islet that was harvested from a human pancreas. So here's some examples of what I mean. Uh, on the left, you'll see one of our uh, islets in high detail. So we can see how many of the cells express insulin and glucagon. And uh, one thing to note here is that from embryonic or iPS cells, insulin and glucagon are frequently expressed in the same cell. And frequently the glucagon expressing population um, is larger than the insulin expressing population. And here you can see that's not true. And in fact, the distribution is very similar to a native islet, which is pictured right below. And uh, in addition to that, the homogeneity of, the, of these uh, uh, hormone expressing cells is very good. Uh, every cell in the cluster is a pancreatic uh, cell. If we look at electron microscopy, it's also um, it, it, very difficult to tell the difference between what we manufacture in the lab and a native islet based on the ultrastructure. Uh, when we expose them to high and low glucose concentrations, we see that they perform uh, similarly to a human islet as well. In this case, I'm showing you secretion data uh, of uh, C-peptide in response to glucose, which is um, a marker of insulin secretion and uh, glucagon uh, being secreted in apposition as it should, as well as a biphasic response. I'm gonna show you this in a little bit more detail uh, in another slide. Uh, they actually express, they're in these clusters are cells that express uh, all of the hormones that you would find in a native islet. Here I'm showing you, um, in addition to the C-peptide, human uh, human um, pancreas polypeptide, we've got uh, somatostatin, glucagon, and uh, serotonin as well. Uh, this is a direct comparison of clusters that we manufacture in the lab and human islets that are harvested from a human pancreas. What we're looking at is how much C-peptide is secreted in response to uh, fluctuations in glucose. And this is a real-time assay where the, um, the uh, sampling of the uh, media to measure the amount of C-peptide is taken every two minutes. And here we can see that the pattern of secretion of the C-peptide very closely resembles the, uh, a native human pancreas. Native human pancreas is known, at least in the lab, to have a biphasic response, which is an initial peak followed by a plateau of insulin secretion that would then drop off when the media was replaced for a low glucose media. And that's what we see here. So we are very gratified to have uh, manufactured islets uh, that are very pure uh, and are from a cell line that is immortal. So we can generate all the islets we need uh, to, to all we can envision for treating uh, patients. 
and um, we can do this uh, consistently. So this is uh, some of the work I want to show you because it's very exciting to us. This is recent work where we're trying to reconstruct a human pancreas in um, the animal model's abdomen using the eyelets that I just showed you. And I'm going to give you some images of different areas within the abdomen that we've successfully been able to recreate tissue that looks and functions like an extra pancreatic endocrine pancreas. So on the left is a mouse fat pad that we have um, used as a, a landing site, a home to engraft our eyelets. And you can see that uh, after several weeks of living in that animal, if we remove that fat pad, you can see it's remarkably similar to a human pancreas. So distributed within that tissue are uh, islets and they are separated from each other as they would be in a native pancreas. They express a lot of uh, insulin and C-peptide. They retain their shape uh, and size. Uh, there's no growth. Um, it looks uh, very similar to uh, what you would uh, expect to see when you section um, a pancreas. We were able to accomplish something very similar in the spleen of rats. And in this case, we simply injected our material uh, through a puncture wound into the splenic tissue, and then six weeks later removed it. And uh, then you can see again, uh, in very similar fashion, that the islets are residing there. They're healthy, they're secreting C-peptide. They co-localize with a very specific marker of beta cells, the ISL1 transcription factor, and uh, they are uh, associated um, with the, the host tissue in a way that is uh, that resembles a native uh, pancreas. There's another one. This case, we've used a mental tissue of the abdomen of a rat, and we uh, tried to reconstruct pancreatic tissue in the same way that we use the fat pad in mice. And in this case, I'm showing you some different markers that uh, we were very excited to see. So the cells from our islets are stained green. That is a human specific uh, stain that uh, marks the mitochondria of human cells. And then the red is uh, CD31, which would mark blood vessels. And what we can see here is that we were able to reconstruct a pancreatic uh, tissue and the, the islets are all um, separated by and closely associated with uh, rat blood vessels. So sp spontaneously, a, uh, you could say a cooperation between the host and the cells that we grew in the lab occurred uh, so that each of these islets that we implanted uh, was fed by a, um, a network of blood vessels. And uh, so it was a very healthy tissue and there was no growth or other issues that um, would preclude us from applying this technology to um, the clinic. One thing that you would note here is that there are some structures there on the bottom middle that appear to be ducts. And this is similar to what you would see in a native pancreas. The islets are associated with ductal tissue. And what's very curious about the ducts that we made is that some of the cells in the duct belong to the host, their rat, and some are actually human. So there was a collaboration in the reconstruction of this pancreas tissue all the way down to a duct or what looks to be a duct and has several markers of a duct 
being composed of part human and part rat cells. So uh, it was really kind of neat. We were uh, surprised um, by this outcome, but also um, felt like this was a terrific place to build on to um, really hone our methods of reconstructing a new endocrine pancreas in a human patient. All right, so then uh, another important part of our work, and this is just one slide, but it actually represents most of the work that we do now, is GMP manufacturing. So of the, uh, the last fundraise that we received, all of that was funneled into um, creating uh, a manufacturing process here that is fully GMP. Uh, and we have done that now. Uh, all the lab outside of that room is fully GLP, uh, and every single material that we use is characterized to uh, FDA standards that would enable us to use this on an actual human patient in the clinic. Mm -hmm. So uh, we are now a fully-fledged factory for replacement human islets that are very difficult to tell apart from islets harvested from a pancreas. And, and um, if I can just interject for a minute, um, that Series C funding came from Eli Lilly and another source? Um, there are venture capital groups uh, that participated in this round that were also interested in um, the work that we're doing and in the field of islet replacement therapy. Great. And so are you going to, do you plan to partner with, you know, like Eli Lilly going forward to kind of, you know, get this across the finish line or what's your thoughts? So we are doing what we can to remain independent right now. Uh, we are fully focused on the work that um, I'm describing, manufacturing and preparing for clinical studies in 2023. And uh, so we, we really have not diverted our focus away from that main goal. Uh, so um, those types of questions that we're just not um, prepared to answer. So the next question is, um, I think, or it should be, that what I've described for you is a therapy that only solves half the problem. And half the problem means that we can supply replacement islets, but we still have no method of implanting them to a patient without giving that patient a full body immune suppression to a degree that would enable an organ transplant, right? So this is, um, a very strict uh, drug um, protocol that has significant and serious side effects. So this is not practical for most patients. This is not our goal. Our goal is to treat patients without immune suppression um, so that uh, an insulin-dependent diabetic can stop uh, insulin injections and resume a normal, uh, healthy lifestyle. So we do have strategies for doing that. I'm not uh, going to focus on it in today's talk. I just wanted to introduce uh, the work with ourselves, but uh, I'm going to just tell you briefly what that is here. We have developed a, a device, which is a physical barrier uh, that would basically separate the implanted material from the host so that uh, the host is incapable of mounting a, an effective immune destruction attack. And uh, there, are some, uh, there are some advantages and disadvantages to this approach. Um, we're not uh, you know, committed to saying that this is the only way to do it. We think that there are others. One, another way that we are uh, spending a lot of time working on is uh, hypomunogenic 
uh, versions of our cell line. So this is also something that many of you are familiar with. Um, there are technologies available to try to um, engineer the cells through genetic manipulation so that a host immune system would have difficulty recognizing them and stimulating the cascades that would lead to their targeted destruction. And so we here's an example of that. Um, our parent line, which is the one I've just shown you, which is so good at making islets. Uh, we have taken that one and removed its ability to express HLA. So those are the molecules that present antigen to traveling lymphocytes. And you can see that here, B2M stained green in the parent line is one of the molecules that are required to uh, organize and shuttle the HLA molecules to the surface. Without that, they just simply can't assemble into functional HLA molecules. And in the genetically modified line that we've created, that, that uh, protein is, is no, no longer evident. It is completely eliminated, um, but uh, the cell line retains its ability to grow into those nice islets. And you can see that they are still expressing uh, C-peptide, even though they cannot express antigen uh, on their surface. So that's just a, um, an example of some of the work that we've done. That's really um, interesting. I mean, so without any antigen expression on the surface, could they potentially be mistaken for a teratoma or like a cancer cell by the immune system? So um, basically they would have a lowered ability to be recognized as foreign. That doesn't mean no ability. <laughs> there are still other things because the immune system is such a complex um, and uh, an effective, um, I guess, uh, uh, control against both invasion and also um, um, tumor genesis that you just mentioned. So the risk is, Monica, as you said correctly, if they are invisible to the immune system, any spontaneous mutations that would cause a tumor to form would also be invisible. So there would be a, um, an impairment in the host's ability to detect tumor, tumor growth. So that is an issue uh, that needs to be wrapped into uh, the design of how this would be implanted and how this would be used clinically, absolutely. Yeah, speaking to um, Dr. Andreas Garcia from Georgia Tech the other day, and also I see that his, one of his colleagues, Dr. Esma Yolku is on this call. They're doing some really interesting work with FASL Maybe she can talk to you a little bit about it, but um, you know they're really looking at that as a way to um, cause some local immune modulation and and preserve um, islet implanted or implanted islets. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We followed uh, Esna and uh, Haval's work in uh, using fast ligand to cause tolerance in the host for years. Um, so this is uh, something that this is an active uh, conversation, obviously. Great. All right. So then uh, let's see if I've got anything else here. Nope. I just wanted to thank you. I hope I haven't run over my time. I haven't looked at uh, my no, stopwatch. It's fantastic. I'd love to. Um, presentation. No, it's, uh, that was great. I, I'd like to um, invite the audience to ask questions, unmute yourself and just, you know, hop in. Let me uh, stop sharing then so we can uh, go back, see if I can. Uh, technically figure out how to do that. <laughs> yeah, I so so that is really um, interesting. How long have these, you know, um, islets um, 
you know, been able to survive? I mean, what are you thinking if you just sort of like hypo or speculate on the idea of this type of implant? Can you implant? So that's a good question that I don't think uh, anybody knows. So that's something that will need to be determined empirically in a human patient. Mm -hmm. the, reason, the reason is that the animal models we use are, are bad. Um, the, the methods we use to induce diabetes in rodents or non-human primates is very toxic and many of them uh, shortens their lifespan. Those animals have a short lifespan anyway. So, um, and then the last thing is that that is by necessity always a xenogenetic implant. So it is never a true mimic for um, a clinical use of this type of technology. So the stability is going to have to be determined uh, in human patients. Now, there is a track record of allogeneic implants um, using cadaveric material. And in most of those cases, the patients receive uh, implants from several donors, which makes the immune rejection more likely because of the multiple uh, uh, non-self antigens that would be presented. So I will walk out on a limb and say that a single therapy from uh, one of these stem cell derived islets, uh, which is younger and hardier than a cadaveric islet, is likely to last at least as long as what we've seen clinically with cadaveric islets. And in the clinic, there are patients who have had those implants for 20 years that are still functioning. Um, even if the median is only five years, um, it's possible that uh, this is a long lasting treatment. Anyone from the audience like to weigh in on that or? Oh, here's a couple of questions. Amazing progress uh, from George Harb at Salino. Uh, two quick, congratulations, two quick questions. One, graft IHC for ISL1 and C-peptide in the spleen so showed some of the ISL1 plus positives were C-peptide negative. What are they? Ooh, so that was a... That is a good question. So um, someone is very knowledgeable in this space. So we also noticed that that's not right. We want every single ISL expressing cell to express insulin and it should. So um, we actually went in uh, and addressed that. Uh, the reason is that we spent 10 years working with um, methods to differentiate ourselves. And so we just know them very well. And we were able to uh, take a look at those cells, uh, modify our protocol to uh, reduce the uh, presence of cells that have beta cell transcription factors but aren't expressing insulin, right? So, wow, uh, good catch on, on that. And the second question is, did you observe ductal growth in any of the other transplant sites or only in the Amentum? Um, so only in the Amentum. Uh, and fat pad, sorry, because the fat pad is sort of a, a surrogate in the, in the mouse. So when we did these, uh, even long-term, three months and longer, in the spleen of rats, we never saw ductal growth. Um, the, the splenic implants were, uh, if you imagine from an anatomical perspective, very different, right? Because the spleen is already a good landing site for an islet. There's no there's no remodeling that needs to occur. Um, it already is rich in, in blood supply. It always it already has the parenchyma. As long as the, the post-implant um, survival is good, there's no death to inflammation, 
or uh, the processes that would uh, cause the healing of, you know, the injury caused by a puncture wound of a needle tract, um, it was fine without remodeling the tissue at all. Could they, could uh, the same they, as you would expect in the liver is, but the, the omentum and the fat pad, those need to be significantly remodeled. And that's when we see blood vessels. That's when we see ducts. Could the spleen also sort of be a site though for sort of uh, quiescent memory cells, you know, that sort of, I don't know. You know. So the, the spleen has been tried before. We're not the only ones to, to do that. In, yeah. in general, um, we have uh, concluded that it's not an ideal site. Uh, I think that from a surgical perspective, uh, most surgeons would want to avoid um, puncturing the spleen, uh, but it's not an impossibility, right? Yeah. Uh, it's not our preferred site. Okay. And then I guess someone said, uh, uh, Dr. Nair said ISL1 is not just restricted to beta cells and it's a pan progenitor marker. Most players in the field are doing immunocloaking with uh, HLA deletion. Do you have comments on how to differentiate your technology from others in the field? Good question. Dr. Gopika Nair, she has her own company and she's coming out of UCSF. So the, there are, I think that uh, if you look closely at the uh, immune cloaking and cell line development, there, there needs to be two signals, right? It has to be an absence of the signal that says not self, but also the presence of a signal that says um, don't, don't eat me, right? There needs to be the absence of a positive as well as the negative. So most of the variation in this field is on that second signal, right? In some cases, people will cause HLAG, for example, to be expressed. In other cases, people will cause the overexpression of CD47. And that's really where I think the, there's variation. There has been a couple of uh, different methods for deleting HLA, so MHC1 and MHC2, but the effect of those is the same, right? Eliminating the expression of just those um, antigen-expressing proteins on the cell surface. So, um, you know, that's uh, the same areas where we are. We have got our own conclusions about what second signal is needed to make sure that these cells can survive in the face of a natural killer cell attack. Yeah, I think Leo Ferreira did a lot of that work when he was at Harvard as uh, in Doug Melton's lab looking at the HLAG. And I think there was a lot of inconclusive, you know, didn't seem, they weren't able to really pin it down for being a, being a factor. So if you spend time studying immunology, it sometimes seems um, unrealistic to create a completely immune invisible cell line, mm. right? And I think that the key word here is that it, it would be um, hypoimmune or less uh, immunogenic. And it, it can't be forgotten that in a type one diabetic, there's also the autoimmune component to deal with. And no one knows whether or not an autoimmune reaction that targets insulin or GAD is uh, going to be affected by eliminating HLA. Yeah. Um, and, you know, immune cells, if they don't see any HLA or any MHC1, they're going to start thinking it could be a cancer cell and get rid of it anyway. So it's a fine line, isn't it? Um, okay. So... Let's see, is there, how, Dr. Yolkel, do you wanna ask a question? I think you unmuted yourself. 
Yeah, thank you. I, I wasn't quite sure whether we can, we need to type or we can just directly ask. You can do it either way. Great. Neil was a great presentation. It's, it's very impressive work and, and I know your work for, for years. Uh, so one question. Uh, so you, you mentioned that you really get the donor islet cells and you transfer, you fertilize, and then, you know, you produce the islet cells. But then also in presentation, you mentioned that creating a pancreas. So this is not only islet cells you're immortalizing, also you're doing other tissues that when you get from the donor? Or um, just- Yeah, I, feel, I, I, I think that it's a, little bit, it's a little bit confusing the way I presented it. So we don't do this process of generating an, an immortal cell line with every patient who would need islets, right? This is not an autologous cell therapy. We only did that one time. So the difference is that instead of taking a skin cell, for example, uh, and then reprogramming it to an IPS and then later expecting it to become a, a very minor proportion of the pancreas, we instead started with a purified islet. And then we generated a stable cell line that was good at making more islets. And that's it. So it is one cell line. So this is, we have a master cell bank and a working cell bank and a full characterization. And we focus on this one cell line that would be used as an allogeneic therapy to treat all patients. The only difference is that it is not an IPS cell. It has some characteristics that are very different. And we've been able to capitalize on in the lab to generate islets that we believe are more pure and more consistently made and more mature than anything else that's out there. Yeah, no, that sounds great. May I ask another question? Yeah. Yes. So you, if I'm not wrong, you followed animals like around six weeks or maybe further. But one question is about whether the cells, when you put it there, are this terminally differentiated cells. If you follow them, let's say six months, will you see any other generation of the islet cells or any other type of the cells that are human origin? So um, I think that there likely is maturation that occurs over time. Um, we have not done an analysis, the gene expression analysis of explants to confirm and to tell you uh, exactly what direction the maturation is occurring. Um, that is a very interesting thing that we want to do, but we're just so focused on meeting regulatory requirements for an IND approval that we have put that type of work on the back burner. It is logical and the data suggests that that maturation is happening because the graphs improve their performance over time. Everyone has seen that. It's not 24 hours after implant or 48 hours after that these animals have regular glucose control, it takes several weeks. So there is a process that occurs of maturation. So we just don't know exactly uh, how that process is happening. That's all. That's, that's great. So th this is only one cell line, like there is no, we're not talking about, just, just to clarify, we're not talking about the multiple donors, right? We're talking about the one donor and you generated the cell line and that's where you're producing, keep making more islands. That's right. And, and this is not something that we can envision doing a second time. I mean, the complexity of making a GMP FDA compliant product with all of the tracing chain of custody from a donor site 
into a, our clean room and then track every single thing that ever got in the room with it uh, over the last 10 years has been, uh, you know, something that took a lot of our effort and concentration. And it's not something we can imagine doing for each patient. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. This is, I think, is benefit, uh, having only one donor type. So did you have a chance? I know that your focus was all about, you know, production and then having a great islets, which you have already. Uh, like, maybe, uh, have you looked at it whether after you, do they uh, get more antigenic by the, you know, time? when they differentiate or or when they when you produce during the production i wonder like from at the beginning of the immunogenicity it stays same goes down or goes up through the passages of the cell yes. yeah so there has been a concept published a few times that in in an ips cell or an embryonic stem cell has some immune privilege um, in our experiment experience we have not seen that I don't think that they're, at least with the material we've worked with, that is not valid. Our cells are immunogenic in a host that has a healthy immune system. Uh, absolutely. And there is no change uh, in a younger version of our uh, cell line versus an older one. That's just not the case. Thank you. Right. Well, maybe it, maybe it's a time to collaborate with the FASL folks and knock down the other piece. Right. Well, so Monica, the, the, all this work is academic, uh, as far as I'm concerned, until we can treat a patient without immune suppressive drugs, right? That's correct. So uh, a lot of times... You got to get a bunch of patients too. You don't want to get shut down after two. That's right. So, um, so that, that, that is our, our only focus. I know that we have to be, uh, you know, we have to walk before we run and take a step-by-step approach. But uh, of course, we're frustrated with that as much as uh, patients who are interested in re replacement cell therapy would be frustrated by the slow progress. Yes, uh, uh, absolutely. But yeah, patients, um, patients are ready from what I, from what I see in here for uh, release from their 24 seven, 365 days a year, you know, um, monitoring, self-monitoring of uh, what the organ should be doing. Dr. Wang, do you want to ask a question? Yes, um, thank you, Monica. Um, well, very uh, interesting uh, approach. Um, I, uh, I do have a question uh, for the um, reprogramming. Um, you said you take the human eyelids, uh, do the reprogramming and the immortalization. So um, you, did you uh, separate different cell types from human eyelids or you do the reprogramming for all uh, types of the cells? Um, I noticed um, when the uh, eyelid uh, transplanted, uh, you showed the, both the beta cells and alpha cells. Uh, did you separate them or you just uh, reprogramming all cell types? So we, um, we did not individually reprogram different sorted cells. What we did was we took the, the population that survived after we had done the islet harvest and purification, and then generated single cells from that. Uh, as you are aware, this is very harsh and most of the cells die in the process. Um, and it's only a rare population that becomes successfully reprogrammed. So the selection that you are alluding to 
we did on the back end. So we took, uh, we did this over and over and over again with material from three different donors. And I think in the end, we had multiple hundreds of clones. And so the screening we did was we were trying to find which of those, those immortal cells wanted to become a beta cell again. So it is logical to assume that there was an identity in its history that was imprinted on its genome using epigenetic imprinting methods uh, that suggested it originated from a beta cell. But I, I don't know that, right? I don't know that. I can only conjecture because there has been publications saying that it, it's, it does happen, that epigenetic memory persists after reprogramming. So uh, I think it's likely that that's happened, but I don't know for sure. Uh, honestly, we didn't care what the origin was. We, were only, want, we only wanted a cell that uh, had that behavior, right? And I think that anyone who's worked with reprogramming uh, can, uh, can understand where I'm coming from because it just like any science experiment, you know, 90% of the time it doesn't work, right? And you have these materials that are not correctly reprogrammed. So what we, the idea that we had was that maybe those things, those cells that were not iPS cells actually had a greater clinical value than the iPS cell, right? And the reason is that there is no clinical application for a human embryo. There just isn't, right? There's only clinical applications for specific tissues. Mm -hmm. So why is it that we would want to um, so stringently and strictly identify and grow uh, IPS or embryonic stem cells. Okay. Um, another question is um, for the reprogramming and the later you showed the um, down regulation of the um, beta two microglobulin. Uh, did you use a um, like a virus or non viral uh, approach for that? So the um, the work in genetic manipulation of our cell line. When we did that, we knew that this was intended to be a clinical commercial product. So we were very careful to use methods that were compatible and whose uh, intellectual property wasn't owned by somebody else, right? We had to have a freedom to operate and it had to be a cell line without genetic mutations that would cause this to become um, dangerous for a patient. So uh, we were very careful. So for example, the reprogramming, uh, we used only episomal plasmids that we constructed in-house. There was no exposure to uh, viruses, uh, as well as a number of other technologies that are used to introduce uh, mutations into the human genome. Uh, we avoided all of that. And uh, uh, same, same with the reprogramming, I'm sorry, same with the deletion of the MHC1 and MHC2, uh, we uh, developed uh, our own uh, materials to do this in a way that um, uh, did not induce genetic mutations and did not require licensing from outside groups. Great, thank you. Um, I think it made the process 10 times more difficult, uh, but- and, Yeah, you know, well, if you go. want to have a streamlined, you know, uh, journey to the clinic, then you've got to think about all these other pieces. So. You basically have to do it all old school. So that's how we did it. Well, this has been great um, in the interest of your time. And I, you know, we went a little over. Thank you so much for uh, chatting with the commu scientific community and for, and for, um, you know, 
highlighting what's going on right now with Seraxis and we hope to see more, um, you know, in the near future. Well, thanks for the opportunity um, to, to present today and uh, I was happy to do it. It was great. Let's talk to you uh, hopefully in the, in the future and have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Thanks to everybody Thank who participated. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.